The title of my lesson tonight is Tough Love. Everybody knows what tough love is all about, right? I looked up, uh, it's hard to find a definition of uh, tough love, but Wikipedia says it is to treat someone harshly or sternly with the intent to help them in the long run. It's a pretty good definition. Anybody ever had to administer tough love to someone, maybe a, a child or family or a friend? Probably a bunch of people. If you're a parent, I know for sure you know all about tough love, right? I mean, there's lots of opportunities as a parent to show tough love. You know, I could have a lot of, uh, of examples to give, but I, you know, at today's world, I, I think about TV and, and the internet and social media. I mean, just such a dangerous thing today for, for our children. You know, you've seen some recent headlines involving some, you know, gotten to life-changing uh, events because of social media and because of what's on the internet out there. I saw something the other day that said that uh, almost or over 30% of all the usage of the internet is for pornography. Over 30%. Think about that. Not business. More than 30% of all the internet usage is for pornography. So it's a dangerous place. So you know, if you've got kids, you're always trying to figure out how to protect them from that, right? And you try all kinds of different things, taking away their phones at night and limiting it and blocking it. And I'm sure, you know, you've heard as probably has been said around our houses that why are you doing this? I can't communicate with my friends, right? You're ruining my life. You've probably heard that if you've got children, right? Why are you doing this to me, dad? And you just want to say tough, right? tough, tough love. It doesn't really matter that you think I'm ruining life. I'm really trying to protect you. And that's really what tough love is all about. And, you know, you may be listening to this and saying, you know, well, I'm kind of past that stage in my life. And, uh, you know, I don't have kids. I'm not dealing with those kind of issues. But if you're a believer, then you're going to at some point, hopefully in your life, have to administer tough love. You know why? It is a part of pretty much every discipleship relationship. You know, when we're discipling others, there's going to be a bunch of times that you're going to have to administer tough love. And as Christians, we're all called, right, to be disciples, to disciple others. And I know that, uh, you know, we probably don't do a very good job of that. I'm not saying this class. This class is probably really good at it. But as a whole, the church doesn't do a great job of, of being disciple makers, do we? Even though it's commanded by Scripture, we still just don't have to do a good job. Again, I know it's nobody in this class. Everybody in this class is out doing all that they're supposed to do and all that they're commanded to do. But believe it or not, there are people in the church that are more takers than they're givers, right? Is that true? Am I the only one that sees that? That there's, in a church, sometimes there's people that like to take and not as much give? Well, I hate to tell you, if, if you see someone that's more of a taker, okay, than they are a giver, then I would tell you that they may not be a follower. Ooh, that's harsh, isn't it? If somebody's a taker, they may not be a follower. I mean, the Bible tells us that in Luke 9, 23, right? It says that if you want to be a follower, what does it tell you to do? You got to what? Deny yourself, okay? Because at the root of not wanting to go out and disciple others, there's a lot of reasons, but one of them generally is selfishness. And it isn't just kind of like you can look at it and say it just looks like selfishness. No, it's really more just about focusing on yourself and your own problems and your own issues instead of focusing on others. Right? So I can say pretty much certainty, your main taker might not be a follower. 
and the reality of it for all of us as Christians, we need to we need to be discipling others. We need to go out and we need to adopt some orphans. That's what my friend uh, Richard Ellis, he's a pastor at Union Church, he always likes to refer to the discipleship as, as orphans, spiritual children, spiritual orphans. He says there's lots of spiritual orphans out there in the world, people that are Christian and non-Christian that are desperately seeking spiritual parents. You know, they need somebody in their life and, you know, and they're just, they're searching out much like some children out there need physical human parents. There's lots of people out there that are in desperate need of spiritual parents. And I can tell you that because I get questions a lot and requests a lot from people that says, Scott, can you help me get one that would disciple me? And I'll tell you how hard it is. It's almost impossible. I try and try and try. And over and over again, I fail because I just can't find enough people that really want to pour into someone else's life and be a disciple for them. It's just really, really hard. And you know, like I said, there's a lot I think at the core it comes down to selfishness, but you know, people come up with other excuses too. And, and the reality of it is being a discipler isn't really about experience. I could borrow on the analogy for your own children or, you know, there's a lot of young moms. I mean, how many when they had their first child came home that they knew exactly everything to do, right? Doubtful. You kind of just learn as you go, right? So it's not really about experience. It's also not because we're going to see tonight, uh, in part, in this chapter really is, could be a, a part equal on discipleship, that Paul, okay, Paul was the spiritual dad, if you will, to Corinthians in this church. And there were definitely lots of people in the church that were older than him. So it's not really an age thing. Some people want to kind of make it an age thing. I got to find someone younger than me, but that's not really what it's about. It's not really about experience. It's not about age. Really being a discipler is about willingness, right? Willingness, that you, you're willing to give up yourself for somebody else. It sounds, again, like Luke 9.23, right? Deny yourself and take up your cross. You know, and that reference to cross is kind of what Jesus did for us. You know, he took up his cross for us, and that's what, that's what discipleship is all about. Sometimes discipleship, okay, it includes tough love, and that's really the, the subject of this chapter tonight is about tough love. I just wanted to use it as an opportunity to talk about discipleship. Is that all right? I'm going to talk some more about it at the end as well. Let me give you a little bit of a, of a chapter summary, if you will, in a nutshell about what chapter 7 is, is about and kind of what we're looking at here. It really, if you, if you think about chapter 7, it's really taking up where Paul left off in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians. So if you turned over for a second to chapter 2 in verse 12 and 13, just want to make sure you know how to kind of turn the pages in your Bible. Chapter 2, in verse 12, he says that when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So he says there, I didn't find Titus. So Paul is on this kind of missionary journey, okay? He took one, two, and this is his third journey. He kind of came through Ephesus. He's on the, the coast of Turkey. He's going up. He's went to the Tross, and, and he can't find Titus. He's looking for him. His heart's longing for him. So he leaves. He goes across the ocean over to Macedonia. As he's making his way down to Corinth, he's going to turn around and go back, okay? And this is probably about 
I don't know, 30 years or so after Jesus has been crucified. This is after he had written the first letter, 1 Corinthians, okay? It's after that, and it's before he wrote the 2 Corinthians. And in between these 1 and 2 Corinthians, he wrote this other letter, okay? And this other letter is not in the Bible, uh, but this other letter is a letter of rebuke. Now, you thought the 1 Corinthians was a letter of rebuke, right? Because it was very harsh. The whole chapter after chapter, he was always admonishing, if you will, the, uh, the Corinthians. But this, this letter that he wrote in between is a very severe letter. And if you turn back over to chapter 7, he talks about it in verse 8. So in chapter 7, verse 8, he says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter. Well, that's the letter he's talking about. Okay, is this, this letter that he wrote in between 1st and 2nd Corinthians, he's talking about here, he says, I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Why does he not regret it? Well, if you remember 1st Corinthians, you'd know that they deserve it. You know, this church was kind of a church gone mad, right? They had all kinds of bad sins, from sexual sins to, at this time, there's lots of false prophets, lots of people coming against Paul, so they deserved it. And this letter that he wrote was really kind of a letter, if you will, of tough love. That's what you could consider this letter. It's a letter of tough love. And now what's happened is, is while he's on his journey, he's, he's sent this letter. He's come looking for Titus. And one of the reasons he's looking for Titus is because Titus has been with the church in Corinth. So he's waiting for the response, right? They don't have text and email back then. So he's trying to figure out what happened after I sent my letter. You know, I admonish them. I've sent this letter of rebuke, calling them out on what they're doing. You know, I love them, but I'm administering this tough love, and now I'm just waiting. And boy, if you're a, if you're a parent and you've ever had to do this, you'll know that that waiting, it can be difficult. You know, you're just trying to make sure you did the right thing and you don't know. I mean, I've had a few of those nights, you know, where I, I, I ended the night with tough love, and in the morning I'm just hoping, you know, gosh, okay. That, that it stuck the way I wanted it to, stuck, so, to stick. So Paul right now, he's waiting. He's trying to just hope for the best, and he's looking for Titus. And then here in this letter in chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, he writes about the fact that Paul's now, or that Titus showed up. He's found Titus, okay? And it's probably been about six months or so since he wrote the letter. And now Titus is coming back to basically report to Paul and to tell him, okay, what's happened? And what, what he's going to report to Paul is that, listen, your letter, it worked. It worked. There was a change of heart. You know, that they've, they've changed their ways. They've turned back to Jesus. And by extension, now they're back to following Paul in his, in his teaching. So the tough love we'll see in this letter or in this chapter that it worked. And I think that by looking at this chapter and thinking of it in this context of tough love, I think we can learn a few things. And uh, when I was thinking about this and kind of preparing it along this line, I was thinking, you know, this is always dangerous. <laughs> you know, anytime you're kind of, you know, trying to talk to someone about administering tough love, it can be, in my mind, kind of dangerous because most people, I, I think, do a pretty poor job of it, myself probably included, and, and you don't really deliver it the right way. So, you know, I want to make sure that we understand if you have to do this, because sometimes this is a part of being a parent. It's part of discipleship. Your spiritual children as well. Sometimes you're going to have to do this. Sometimes you're going to have to administer tough love to someone. Okay? But we need to know how to do it right. And I think we can learn some things from this chapter that might help us. And specifically, I think we can learn, and I've got it on this handout for us. 
I think we can learn some, some do's and don'ts uh, when administering tough love. Just some things to think about when we're, if we ever have to do this in our relationship we have with others, our discipleship relationships. Uh, I think we can look and see what success looks like. What are we trying to accomplish? I mean, we're really not just trying to make them feel bad. You know, we're not trying to be mean-spirited, right? What, what does success look like? When is tough love successful? And then thirdly, this could kind of, and all of these really could apply to discipleship as a whole, you know, is really what's in it for us? You know, what's in it for us? Because it really takes a lot of guts, doesn't it, to, to do this? Because you're risking a lot. You make somebody mad, they may never talk to you again, you may hurt a relationship forever. You know, there's a lot on the line when you're doing something like this and you're taking this kind of a stand. So what's, what's really in it for us? Why do we go to all the trouble of, of caring about someone enough to disciple them, caring about someone enough to, to show tough love when you need to? What, what's in it for us? So that's the things I want us to think about and answer tonight as we go through this. So I'm going to read the chapter, and then we're going to go back and answer these uh, these questions, all right? So chapter 7, start, because we finished up uh, the first verse last week, and um, I'm going to start there in verse 2. It says, make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort and all our affliction I'm overflowing joy for even when we came into Macedonia our bodies had no rest but we were afflicted at every turn fighting without a without and fear within but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by coming of Titus so he's back so it's just this continuation from chapter 2 and not only by his coming but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief, produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, or what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be re revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore we are comforted. Besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, but the Spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater. As he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Take a look at those three things that I want us to look at. First, what are some do's and don'ts when administering tough love? First, pay attention to your resume. We talked about this last way last week. Your resume is what you know what, what you can look at your life and how you live for Christ. It's how you earn the right 
okay? How you earn the right to share Christ with others. If you look at verse 2 there, he says, we have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have taken advantage of no one. So in, in effect, what he's saying is, listen, I've come, with unclean, I've come with clean hands. Because if you don't come with clean hands, right, then, then it's hard to, to administer this tough love. I mean, if I'm telling my children, you know, not to be watching certain things on TV, but I am, it's hard for me to, to make much progress, right? If I'm not living it out in front of them and living it out example, it's really hard for me to have any authority to go and tell them what to do and to be tough on them, right? The old saying of do as I say, not as I do, which my parents told me, it's just not true, right? They watch everything you do, everything you do. It just doesn't work. So the first thing you have to do is make sure that you pay attention to how you live your life, your resume, very important. And second, never use tough love to he talks about there in verse 3, I do not say this to condemn And tough love is not about somebody feel bad, right? There's no condemnation in tough love. You're not trying to beat somebody down and, and be, I mean, let's not forget that tough love includes love. You can't show tough love unless you first show love, right? It's not about condemnation. It's about grace, and it's about humility, and it's about service, and it's about love. It's about letting them know that you're in their corner. You support them. That's what it's about. It says that in verse 3 there, I do not condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. That's what it's about, to die together and to live together. They got to know you're for them. Never use tough to condemn someone. And then the last thing on this, I would say, is you must have patience and faith. Patience and faith. I mean, that waiting, imagine, you know, Paul, like I said, he can't communicate. He's, he's, he sent this letter away. He, he mailed it, and now he's just a gut-wrenching time of just trying to, to wait it out. Did it work? I mean, it's a tough, tough time. You know, if you love somebody and you care for somebody and you've, and you've went and you tried to do this, you tried to call them out and administer this tough love and you think you've done everything right and now you're just waiting. Ugh, that's tough. That's really can be hard, just trying to, trying to, to wait and see how God's going to move and, and did you do everything right? And that's the time that he's in, but you've got to have patience. You've got to have patience. You've got to have faith. Faith in God, don't you? I mean, Paul waited six months and five chapters. All right, six months and five chapters. You got to have patience and faith. And the next thing is, when is tough love successful? How do you know you've done the right thing? I mean, you know, how do you measure this? The answer, when you get true repentance. When you get true repentance, he says there in verse 10, godly grief produces repentance. Worldly grief produces death. What's he trying to say there? Worldly grief produces death. If you think about it this way, you know, worldly grief, you, you become sorrowful if you lose, you know, really the, 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 the praise, if you will, the approval of the world. And if you're living for that and for the approval of this world, when you lose it, then you continually try to gain it back. And the more you gain it back, then you're trying to live more and more like the world because you want the world to look at you with approval. And that's just a downward spiral to death. 
just a downward spiral. You're, you're never going to catch up because the more you want the world, the more that approval you get, the more you become of the world and like the world. And, and what he's saying here is that this is just ultimately going to lead to grief and sorrow and eventually death. I mean, no example to look at in distinction than, than uh, Peter, Apostle Peter, Judas, right? But had sorrow. I mean, Peter, when he denied Jesus, had great sorrow went on to be one of the great soldiers of Christ, right? He turned around, repented, but what happened to Judas? He also had great sorrow. And what did he do? He killed himself. It's a great example. And then a little bit more lighthearted was Aaron. We, don't, we didn't coordinate this, but I was, you're thinking about it in terms of directions, as we were talking about up here. Okay, it's like the man and the wife in the, in the car, and they're driving, and, and the wife... Nobody's ever had this happen in this room, I know. The wife says, hey, you got to go that way. What does the husband say? No, 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 got to go that way. Now, if you're driving the way you thought, and you just keep driving and keep driving, and eventually you figure out that you're going the wrong way, and then you got to look over and you got to just really say, ooh, right, I'm sorry. You were right. That's hard. You were right. She just experienced this with the kids. You were right. I was wrong. I'm going the wrong direction. That's what you should say. But, but here's the point. If that's all you do, is it going to help anything? If all you do is say, I'm sorry, and you keep going the wrong direction, is anything going to be any better? No, you're just going to keep going, and you're going to eventually end up in death, or maybe Oklahoma, whichever first, all right? <laughs> you're going to just keep going the wrong direction. No, what do you have to do? You have to stop and you have to turn around and you have to go back. And let me tell you, that's true repentance to have to say you're sorry and turn around and go back and admit you were wrong. Let me just tell you, that's true repentance right there. But you got to turn around. You got to have a change of heart. All right, that's what Jared was talking about tonight. You got to have a change of heart, admitting that you're turning around going in and doing it right. And Paul here gives us seven characteristics of this repentance, what it should look like. And it's interesting to me that I think these also could be seven characteristics of salvation. He gives it to us in, in verse 11. He says, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. So what does all these things mean? He says the first one there, what earnestness and diligence. What he's talking about there is the diligence to stay turned around. Okay, once you turn around and go and back, you know, resisting going back the other direction. That's what he's talking about is true repentance is someone that gets on the right path, that turns around and goes, and they don't give up. No matter what, they're not going back the other way. They don't give up. They're diligent, earnest about it. They're also eager to clear themselves to get rid of the guilt and shame, right? And that's just turning to Jesus is really what that's all about. Just recognizing that there's no condemnation in those who belong to Jesus Christ. I mean, those who repent, one of the hardest things for so many people once they turn away from that and turn to Jesus is getting past this shame. Getting past the shame and the guilt. I think most people experience it. I know I did. I went through terrible bouts of guilt and shame. You know, whenever I... Uh, was a young Christian and I first got invited to a Bible study that Mike Fester led for me and four other guys. After a few weeks or maybe months, I quit the Bible study. And the reason I quit is I was, just went through a difficult business time in my life. 
or I had a lot of failures and I thought to myself, man, I, I can never live up to this. Can't even be a Christian. I'm not even good at that. And I just shed such guilt. It was never going to be like those guys. And one of the defining moments in my life was when Mike Fester brought me into that. He found out why I wasn't there. And he brought me back one, one Friday morning when we had it. And he put his hand around me and he just said, there's no condemnation in those who belong to Jesus Christ. If you can't come to this group, I can't come to this group. It made a huge difference in my life to get rid of that. Clean it all out. Focus on Jesus. The next thing he says, what indignation. You know what this means? It means we, we need to be mad about sin. That's what it is. Somebody that truly repents is mad about sin. They don't want it anymore in their life. And fear, what fear? It's a godly fear. That's a good thing, isn't it? A healthy godly fear is a good thing. It, what it does is it drives you away from ever doing that again. I guarantee it's one of the things that drives me in my life is, is a godly fear. I don't ever want to go back to that. I'm going to fight to keep from doing it. That's what he's talking about. It's longing, desire. It's a longing for purity, for godliness, for holiness, for sanctification. This is, you know, I want to go and be more like Christ. And what zeal? This is a Greek word for heat. It basically means we're on fire for Jesus. That's what it means. We're on fire for Jesus. We just want it. We want to run toward him. And then what punishment? What he's saying there is there's just, there's no more death. You've recognized that you've been redeemed. I love reading the commentary for a guy named David Guzik, and he said, no one can doubt it because the measure of a Christian is not whether or not they sin, but whether or not they repent. It's not whether or not they sin, it's whether or not they repent. We've all sinned, right? We've all sinned. The Bible makes that clear, but unfortunately, not all repent. And you see, tough love, it's like, this, it's like an arrow. I'll kind of borrow from the children again. Arrows full, your quiver full of arrows. We, we hear in the Proverbs, right? It's like an arrow. And if it's aimed properly with the right speed and direction, I mean, if it's aimed with love and with grace and with mercy and with kindness in the right way, it has the ability to hit that target in the right way and change the direction. And what we've got to do is, one's discipling others, is we got to take the care to shoot that arrow the right way. And when we do, God takes over and and true repentance can happen. And then you know what's in it for us? The last one, what's in it for us? Why would we take this risk? Unimaginable joy. That's what Paul says, unimaginable joy. Look in verse 7 there. He's talking, Titus is telling them about the Corinthians' repentance. It says that they are longing, they're mourning, they're, they're full of zeal, they're on fire for Jesus. And Paul says what? I rejoice still more. In verse 9, he says, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. I was reading, I put this quote on there for you from an evangelist, preacher, and scholar named George Morgan. He said, no circumstance of personal affliction can dim the gladness of seeing souls grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's just nothing better, is there, than seeing lives change. If you've ever been a part of seeing someone's life change, there's just nothing better to know that you've been used by God to somehow take this person off of this road to death and put them on a road to life, there's just nothing better than that. It transcends any circumstance, right? That's what Paul's saying, it transcends any circumstance. In verse 4 he says, in all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. You can't quench the joy of helping someone, serving someone, discipling someone. 
It's nothing better. It's like being a parent. It can be frustrating sometimes. It's hard sometimes. People can drive you crazy sometimes. They can hurt you sometimes. Use to listen to you. You know what, though? None of that matters. You just need to show them love. And sometimes you got to show them tough love. But I'm telling you, it'll bring an unimaginable joy in your life. You know, the same proverb that talks about training your child, right? Training a child in the way they should go. And when, even when they're old, they will not depart. It's the same thing in our spiritual orphans, if you will. You got to apply that Proverbs 23, 6 to, the, to your spiritual orphans that you're discipling as well. It's all about training them, you know, helping them, discipling them, and letting them then go out and do that for others. That's what it's all about. So I want to encourage you, you know, and God command you to get in the game. Go disciple someone. And like I said, I'm sure everybody in here is doing it, so I'm not really talking to you, I know. But if I, you know, but on the off chance or somebody in here is not doing that, go do it. It'll change your life. It really will. And think about this. I was looking at some numbers today. If, if one person, one of you, okay, goes out and disciples two people this year, and the next year those two disciple two, and those four that result disciple two more each, in five years you reach 32 people, just one person. Doesn't sound like a ton, right? But it's 32 people that weren't on the right path at that time. Now, if all of us do that, though, you know, maybe there's 75 or more in here, but if all of us do that, then more than 2,000 people in five years. In 10 years, more than 75,000 people. And, and remember, you only have one year obligation. You got to find two that will then go out and do the same thing the next year. You don't have to keep doing this, all right? And if we all started right now, by the time Spencer is my age, we will have reached the world 400 times over. Over 3 trillion people. Over 3 trillion people. And Spencer, I'm pulling out Spencer, Spencer by himself, by the time he's my age, will reach the whole world. Seven and a half billion. The whole world. That's a lot of joy, right? It's a lot of joy. And men, okay, discipling other men, I got this from Stuart, that if you reach the home through the man, 93% chance you'll reach the rest of the home. Think about that. And your impact and going out. I mean, I'm telling you, listen, you can change the world by this class. I've said it before. Just this class. You think you can't, but we can change the world just out of this. And discipleship is the key. You know, we, everybody tries it. Every church, it seems like, everybody's trying to figure it out. How do you do this? Right? How do you do it? And, and most of the time, they're admitting that they can't. And I started thinking about what, what's the one answer to this. And the only thing I could come up with is just do it. Isn't that what Bo Jackson said? Just do it. That's it. I don't have another answer. I've thought about this so much. I've, I've thought about what type of uh, study you use. I've thought about how to motivate people. I've thought about everything in terms of getting people motivated to disciple others. And I can only come up with just do it. Just go do it. Because it'll change. It'll change you, and it'll change them, and it'll eventually change the world. We just got to remember that, that our aim in this, right, our aim is to change lives. It requires love. It requires grace. It requires patience. And it requires faith. Amen? Amen. All right, let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for uh, this group. Thank you for the opportunity that I get every week to come and, and speak, God. Thank you just for the love in this room, Lord, for just all of the encouragement. 
God, I'm just so grateful for each and every person here. And for those that aren't able to be here, Lord, we, we pray for them, Lord. And we, we know there's a lot of people that are, are out dealing with, with life issues, God. And we just want to lift them up to you, Lord. And God, I ask you to give them great comfort tonight, Lord. And God, I thank you so much for just, just the freedom that we have to talk about Jesus every week. Lord, I pray that you would light a fire under everyone in this room, Lord. Let them know the impact that they can have and this courage to go out, Lord, and know that we can make a difference, Lord, just by depending on you, just being willing, being available, letting you do the rest, Lord. Thank you again for this night. In Jesus' name, amen.